parents told him he'd never get anywhere playing video games for a living. Now he's here. It's Behind the Line Radio with your host, Kinetic. And it starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Behind the Line Radio. I'm your host, Kinetic, a.k.a. Nick. And let's see. One kind of interesting piece of news recently is that Nintendo seems to be interested in testing the cinematic waters again. Uh, They were associated with the Mario Brothers movie back in the day, and, you know, most people don't really want to remember that at all. Perhaps most of all Nintendo. But after that bad experience, and this kind of matches what uh, current president Kimishima was saying about wanting to leverage their IP in different ways with, I don't know, theme parks and, you know, they're expanding into mobile. And it makes sense that they'd want to kind of move into the cinematic world again. Of course, video game movies don't exactly have the best history. We've had our Mario Brother movies. We've had our, I don't know, you know, there's the Resident Evil series, probably one of the most successful video game licenses to convert to movies. Uh, we've got Wow, I am blanking all of a sudden on all of this, but you've got... Mortal the, Kombat. <laughs> Mortal Kombat, one, remembered but cheesy, two, is terrible. Uh, we've got, um, I don't know, plenty of other stuff. You don't really have to try too hard. The Warcraft movie came out recently. There was a lot of high hopes for that, and it didn't exactly pan out too great. But, uh, yeah, to kind of discuss some of this, like why video game movies might have trouble and what the different media can present to us uh, as storytelling options and, and all of that. Uh, Bill is joining us again, star of stage and screen, you might say. How you doing, Bill? You might. You might be exaggerating, <laughs> but you might. You, you have I'm starred right. on the stage and you have starred on the screen. That is true. <laughs> I, I am gonna, I'm gonna say that this is just as accurate as I was just telling you before we went on the air about when Greg and I went to see Street Fighter The Legend of Chun-Li. That is a movie with an Oscar-caliber cast that Greg and I risked our lives to see in the theater. And if anyone wants to actually know what I mean by that, go check out the Hero Talk Street Fighter The Legend of Chun-Li. It's possibly my favorite one that I've done with Greg, so it's a it's a good one and fun. So anyhow, um, let's get started. Um, one of the things I'm just going to dive into this. One of the things that I think is most interesting about video games and is pretty unique about video games as a storytelling medium is that it really gives the, the audience is the player and the player has control over the world. The player and, and when I say control over the world, I mean, most importantly, one of the most distinctive features of gaming is the ability to make choices and most other forms of storytelling don't really have that certainly not to the extent that video games do uh does that resonate with you bill well there is the the thing about video games is some of them they tell that they give you that choice in a different way some video games give you a really open-ended world to play in and some it's it's very focused it's very the pathways are not are not that varied so you don't have the opportunity to explore that much in some video games um but yes there is the fact that the 
the player is a, as the audience member is an active participant in the telling of the story. And that is, that is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be games. Also, some of them are going to have, you know, little, if any story associated with them. I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons why there's the criticism of the, um, you know, uh, uh, damsel in distress has been a very overused plot element in video game storytelling because, you, a lot of old games didn't exactly have a whole lot of luxury to tell a story, so you had to get something really, really punchy and simple, and that's a really punchy and simple thing to lean on in old games. Um, well, what do you think is the first game that had a story? Oh, interesting question. Um, I think I, I have an answer, I think, but it's a super simple story. Well, there's Donkey... Well, I mean, I could say Donkey Kong, but Popeye predates it, but it's kind of the same story. Well, I was going to say uh, Pac-Man. True. I mean, it's 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 as episodic as it gets, where you have the little cutscenes in between every couple of levels. But that's the that's as basic as you get. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a tale of survival, you might say, something like that. Mm-hmm. The hunter has become the hunted, and some mm-hmm. of that stuff, turning the tables on your enemies until you get too high, and that doesn't work anymore. Whatever. Um, yeah, uh, but. One of the other things that always strikes me uh, is that through the ability of the player to make a choice, there's sort of a different emotional investment by the player than there is in like a book or a movie or something. Um, you have, I'm going to jump way forward again here, and, and it's a, a an example that I really like in a lot of ways, but Shadow of the Colossus. I mean, that also has, for the most part, a very simple story. Um at least at the core of it, there's a whole bunch of details, but the whole presentation of the game, the whole presentation of the narrative is this sort of, you know, lonely, expansive area that you're exploring and just all of the, just when you're fighting the Colossi, just the absolute stomping that the char- that the main character Wander keeps taking, you just see that he is just struggling and struggling the whole time. And and one of the fascinating things, so you as a player, as the audience, get and I think that gives the player a more intimate relation with Wander than you can get in another medium. I think that because you associate with him so much stronger because you are him. Um, and one of the fascinating things is partway through the game, you may start questioning if you're doing the right thing, but you and that's where kind of the game keeps going is uh with it is in the game mechanic and that's a that's another sort of thing is game mechanics as storytelling metaphor themselves to continue the game you have to keep going through with what you're doing whether or not it's the right or wrong thing so what you might see as a character trait of wander is just unending determination has to rub off on you because if you're going to complete the game, you have to keep going through this anyway, whether it's right or wrong, which is kind of a characteristic of determination in, in, in some, uh, situations where, you know, you're just going to see it through whether it's right or wrong. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting that you said is that the player becomes invested in the game. And I think there's a way in which that has been diminished over the last several years, probably 20 years, maybe more. And that is, it used to be you couldn't save. <laughs> when you couldn't save, when you died, 
you were really pissed <laughs> because <laughs> you had to start again from the beginning. And with the advent of saving, I think it removes a little bit of your investment because when you couldn't save also, the other thing was you would off often have to run the game straight through like you couldn't stop you couldn't go away and have a dinner or whatever or, or start up again the next day and that creates an investment on a level that is very different from when you can say okay i've hit a save point and i'm done or i can save any time which is true in most games these days and i'm mm -hmm. i'll just show up right back where i am and i think that's a a form of investment that uh video games have lost. I, you know what? I, I, I understand what you're saying. And that's something that, um, you know, not being able to save. I mean, you couldn't even have, say, an old Legend of Zelda game without saving. There's a point where the scope becomes too large for not saving to be an option. But there's actually a flip side in some games, like the Fire Emblem series, where you cannot not save. Every move is saved. You can't, like, saving is an excuse, is not an excuse to, like, back up and try again. Like, if you screwed up, or XCOM, XCOM does this too, to some extent. Um, so it always puts you back right before you just bit made the, the dust. move. Yeah. Uh, I think there's some ways around that, but they're, they're kind of, uh, obnoxious. Like, uh, you can start the entire encounter over again, but if you lost a, a unit in the encounter, well, you get them back by starting the encounter again, that might be like, two hours that you had to, to chunk to try to start it over again. Um, and you'd have to be like really careful out. But that on the other hand, talking about investment, like every decision counts that, that kind of gets to the same point on the other extreme, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, and that, that works. I mean, that's the same idea in that yeah. you can't, you can't undo what you've done. Um, and I think, I think the typical video games these days, platform or otherwise, where you can save and walk away at any moment, lose something that films have. And what films have is once the train starts, once the story begins, it's not going to end. Mm. And a really well done film is conscious of that on some level. And you, as the audience member, know that you don't have control and sometimes the film plays on that and makes yeah. you very aware of that fact so that you're stuck watching and you're, you know, like uh, a suspense film, you're thinking, Oh my God, Oh my God, Oh my God, don't no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. But you know, something's going to happen mm. and you're stuck with it. Yeah. Whereas, whereas most films, most of the best films don't have that going on. But, you know, you can you can look at a lot of really well structured and well put together films and you'll realize, oh, they're counting on the fact that once they've got you, you're stuck. Hmm. And that needs to be that's a component of the film. Um, now, ad admittedly, with video and whatnot, we can walk away in the middle of a film as well. But films aren't designed for that. Well, all, what what's more is. Uh, I, I, I take your meaning with, you know, once the train starts, it's not going to stop. I mean, uh, as opposed to the choices that you can make in a video game, you can just decide, say, okay, the entire plot is going to stop right now, and I'm going to do this side quest. You know, I know you said we have to leave in two hours, but I'm going to spend six hours on a side quest. You know, you can still interact with the piece without advancing the storyline, whereas... 
a, a, a film, say, could just, like, lead you and, like, not give you room to catch your breath. Whereas in video games, that kind of gets looked at. So, some people enjoy that, but some people might not enjoy that very much, where you have a game that's, you know, it's a, it's a common criticism of a lot of modern first-person shooters where there's not a lot of variety in the level design, and it's just kind of touring you from one big set piece to the next. Um, so it's, it's, um, kind of forgot where I was going there. <laughs> well, Sorry. actually, um, I'm going to bring something up that I was thinking about when you suggested this topic. And that is, do any game designers ever go back to the basics of aesthetics, i.e. the basics of storytelling way back when, uh, and take a look at what happens if they follow the rules of Aristotle's poetics, they're very strict and they were designed for the limitations of the stage at the time. But, you know, he says things like all the action should take place in one day. All the action should take place in one location. Um, and that's why, and that's why when you read some of the classic Greek literature, you have people coming in to tell you about stuff as opposed to showing you things because you would have to go there and it's about the limitations of the stage and, and the, uh, not wanting to stress the willful suspension of disbelief of the audience. Hmm. But the poetics call for that. And there are certain video games that whether I, whether it was intentional, intentional or not, do in some ways obey these rules. I mean, if you look at Doom, it's not exactly in one location because you're running all around the base, but it's basically one straight shot through mm -hmm. and so it's one day it's basically one day one location um and and i mean obviously by the time you get to shakespeare these <laughs> these rules have been discarded almost completely um and i can't remember what the rest of them are i should have looked at them <laughs> before we started um because i i think there's i can't remember if there's how many more there are Everybody who's listening right now and is studying the poetics right now is going, you idiot. Um, <laughs> I'll try to put them in the description if I remember. Um, but it just makes me wonder about, because oftentimes when I am encountering a video game, the thing that I find irritating is that in order to advance the story, you're going from cutscene to cutscene, at which point either make a movie and tell the story more effectively or take out the cutscenes and somehow include the advancements of the story in the progress of the play. Mm. Um, that's something that I find frustrating as a video game player and somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of narrative and the structures used and, you know, how films are structured and how novels are structured and things like that or plays. Um, because I think video games often suffer from a story, as you were just saying, that is purely there as an excuse. Whereas mm -hmm. you take a game like her story and the story is the game. Yeah. And that's kind of fascinating. Um, whereas there are other games where, you know, you, you take the example of Zelda or, um, more, more, even more basic, uh, Mario Brothers, where you're trying to just rescue the princess. Um, it's so simple, but it's grafted on as, as opposed to being something that grows out of or is why the game is what it is. Uh, and that is something that I think would be really interesting to see 
a gamer that is developing the plot as an extension of or a way to develop the gaming system. Right. That, while you were describing that, one thing really stuck out to me about, you know, uh, going from one cutscene to the next, and that's the Metal Gear Solid franchise, where, uh, to some extent, I've considered those games, uh, like, spy or action movies where you play the action scenes and then everything plays out like as a cutscene. And, you know, I can understand that can seem clunky and it sounds like that's something that you would find very unappealing from a gameplay or even storytelling standpoint. And I think that there is to some extent, um, uh, like you talk about suspension of disbelief, there is, uh, some people might have a higher willingness to jump through those transitions from playable segments to non-interactive segments where, um, say like some people have less tolerance for commercial breaks. You'd be like, Oh, it's just breaking the flow of everything. I don't want to deal with it. Some of the people are just like, yeah, whatever. I'm willing to watch commercials. It doesn't bother me. And so some people would say not be interested in, I don't know, breaking the immersion of losing their control over a situation losing their agency in the situation so that the storyline itself can advance in a more, you know, set piece oriented or predetermined way. Well, I just think it's interesting that one of the things that video games give you is the opportunity to explore so thoroughly in so many different directions and a well, well crafted video game. I think, I think a lot of people agree with this is a video game that you have the opportunity to interact with things that have nothing to do with what needs to be done that you can, Oh, I can pick up this barrel and look, look inside it, or I can climb up these stairs and go inside this house. Yet there's nothing here. Maybe there's somebody to talk to, but, or somebody to scream and say, why are you breaking into my house? And that can be really interesting. Uh, but when it comes time for the advancement of the plot, it's, Okay, we've got to reset you. And that's the other thing is that those cutscenes, what they are, in, in all truthfulness, is a chance to take away the player's ability to interact with the world. Mm-hmm. Because now, what that means is when you get to that cutscene, whatever you did, doesn't matter how you did it or what you did, you got to this point, and that means this happens. At mm-hmm. which point you have no control. It's it, more like a checkpoint than, uh, than anything else. Well, and it, and it, it resets the game for the gameplay, for the game, uh, developer. Mm-hmm. So you, they no longer have to take into account what you've done up to now. Okay. In order to get here, they had to accomplish X, Y, and Z. So we know they accomplished X, Y, and Z. So we can move on. Mm-hmm. As opposed to a truly interactive game where it's keeping track of somehow keeping track of all the things that you've done. Oh, you flipped a switch, you know, 18 screens ago. Hmm. That means this is happening now. And that's why, that's why there's some games that actually do manage to hold on to those decisions, uh, can be very well regarded. And there are also games like the, uh, the Telltale game, Telltale games, uh, Walking Dead games, where they give you the illusion that you've made an important decision. They will actually say, like, you have, uh, a conversation, you choose an option, and someone next to you, there's a little thing that pops up that says, uh, she'll remember you lied or something like that. And it actually doesn't impact anything at all later. There's only a few things in those games. They give you the illusion of more impact <laughs> than you actually have. 
And I've talked to people from Telltale Games. They've openly stated that, yeah, it doesn't do anything. They just have a thing on the screen that says something. And it's and it's gone a minute later. But that, I think, is interesting because it's <laughs> it's playing into the desire to have an effect. Yeah. And that's the other thing. That's the other thing about video games that I think is interesting is they they have the opportunity there's a because there's a lot of different ways to do this to play with the desires of the player. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very very potent way to not only tell the story but to change the level of involvement of the player. And I think a lot of I, I think a lot of video games have trouble with that. Um and I think both her story and um, what was it, the Henry the Stanley Henry, Parable? Oh, the Stanley Parable. Um, they both have the ability to involve you in a very interesting way, even without having the most complex worlds or what have you. Um, yeah, the Stanley Parable, by a wide margin, you can it, it'll play with the the player's expectations and so forth. Well, and and the player, you, because so much. Because it establishes so quickly that you are Hen- Henry or Stanley. Stanley. <laughs> Keep wanting to call him Henry. I did it in the last time we talked about it too. Um, because it so quickly establishes that the player very quickly develops a relationship with the narrator in that game, mm-hmm. where whatever whatever you're doing as you play, no matter what, is influenced by the narrator, and that's a, you you just have to explore that and what's going on because <laughs> you don't have any other choice. That's one of and, the funny things about that game too is that it's it, if if you look at it on a functional standpoint it is a stage that you walk around and that's it. But what makes it so fascinating is the narrator and the way the narrator reacts to your choices. Absolutely. And your choices are therefore influenced by that voice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fascinating. And that interplay is a really, gr- I think, a really great version of what you can do in terms of, as you said, upsetting the player's expectations. Yeah. Um. Hmm. I. So let's um let's kind of talk about that. Um. One thing that I think is worth kind of considering is what not not just film, but also literature. And you also mentioned stage plays. I think, and, and perhaps even just audiobooks and 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 you know opera and and you know music. All of this stuff has different things that they're good at um, in terms of telling a story or relating an emotion. And what I see at, at video games is is are, are what they're biggest most unique attribute is that level of investment and agency that the audience or rather player in this case gets whereas from my point of view with uh literature what it completely lacks is performance there's no other person associated with it it's just the words that the author is giving you which gives the author the challenge of conveying emotion and painting pictures with words and that's why you know you know the you, know, you want to be able to imagine what's going on for yourself when you're reading books you get images for yourself that the author is kind of giving you and you can make it your own uh i think stage plays are very different from film i mean you can kind of think of them in the same way like a, a film 
originally would just be kind of a, a recording of a stage play, maybe with some other little tricks involved. But when you're seeing performances live and in person, there's a lot more uh, direct resonance. Like if you hear someone yelling or crying or something, it will impact you much more directly than seeing a recording of it. Uh, so I think on stage, there can be a lot more powerful emotion that way. Um, and even in uh, 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 like, you know, you have opera, which is going to have, say, you know, a mix of the two. And then there's, there's, there's also, you know, just on television, like books also don't necessarily have the same like timing or pacing restrictions that say a film might have. And you might be able to alleviate those with like a mini series or a TV show. I mean, it, it, I think we can all agree Game of Thrones would not work well as a movie series. <laughs> <laughs> so pacing is also going to be different with everything too. Well, the interesting thing about, um, well, one of the interesting things about novels is that if you go back a ways and you read, say, Henry Fielding's Tom Jones, at the beginning of that novel, which was written in the 1700s, the first chapter is basically Henry Fielding instructing the reader on what to do as they read the novel. Hmm. In other words, at that point, the form was new enough that people didn't necessarily understand how to interact with it because it wasn't the same as reading the Bible, which was broken down into chapters and verses, and you could read one parable at a time or something like that. It was a, an entirely different form. And Tom Jones is a big book. And he talks at the beginning about how you should sit down, you should relax, you should put your feet up and be ready to settle in for a while and with these new adventures of this character that you don't necessarily know, and here we go. And that development changes fairly quickly once people have <laughs> realized, oh, this is a new format. And you get into the 1800s and you have books that are assuming a relationship with the reader that as opposed to the 1700s where you have a much more common use of the dear reader format where the author is literally speaking to the reader. It still that, happened in the 1800s, but it was more of a device than a necessity. Interesting. That sounds a whole and, lot like the development of uh, video game like tutorial stages and other conventions with user interfaces. It's like it's like the well, dear I, reader chapter I, is almost like a tutorial for the book. I think you're right. And what's interesting, I think, is that earlier video games didn't require the dear reader chapter. Well, some of them that that's actually where a lot of the artistry of old games are uh, are found because, you know, Super Mario Brothers World 1-1 is one of the most sublime examples of just teaching you the mechanics through context. You know, that's the only stage where Mario starts on the far left. Oh, I must be supposed to move to the right. Well, yeah, the whole game is moving to the right. Um, and they have stuff about, you know, oh, you want to try to find the, you, you got the uh, enemy that you have to jump over. Okay, okay, well, there's this question mark. Can you jump up and hit that? Okay, well, there's a mushroom that pops out. Well, that looks a lot like the enemy, so we're going to move it to the right, and it bounces off the pipe. It's going to hit Mario. And that's just in the first couple, you know, screens. and. So there, there, stuff like that does show up 
in old games, but they, they didn't have the capacity to have a big, overt, explicit, like, this is how you play and kind of walk your hand through it. Well, so I a think, lot of that had to be very subtle and clever in the stage design. Well, I think that's a, an example of the development of it. And if you go back even earlier, you know, Space Invaders, Asteroids, those were just, hey, here you go. <laughs> there's there's no explanation. You just you just shoot to kill. Um, and and another thing about it is as time goes by, uh, Ego Raptor did a video that was that was excellent talking about uh, Mega Man X's first stage, comparing a lot of its stuff to its tutorial elements of its first stage, and pointing out that you know uh, as time went on, as 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 games kind of progressed past this. They started appealing to a much wider audience, and they had to be a lot more explicit and handholdy. So, it's uh, uh, it the games have the art that makes them popular, that expands the audience to the point where the art has to change to reflect the audience. So it's just an evolution of the medium, really. Well, it's interesting that you parallel the development of the game to the development of the audience. Because that is something I saw a video about uh, after David Bowie passed away. He had, I think it was in the early 2000s, he was talking to an interviewer and he said, oh, well, I think the internet is going to completely change the nature of music. And the interviewer was curious as to why he thought that. And he said, well, it's going to completely change the interaction between the artist and the audience because there's going to be a much more direct and uh, unintermediated uh, relationship where what the audience says is going to get directly to the artist and vice versa. And lo and behold, that's what's happening now, where mm -hmm. with Twitter and Facebook and all of these social, Instagram, all these social media platforms, now there are a lot of times where random Joe Q public ends up having an interaction with somebody who is their idol or their somebody they're a fan of. And it happens so much more often now. And you'll see so many more instances. I mean, it happens all the time, you know, in the in in the embarrassing way where somebody's like, oh, I have to apologize for this tweet. I, <laughs> you know, I said something stupid and I shouldn't have yada, yada, yada. But it also happens in, in other ways where it's collaborative and people are getting together and understanding things that they wouldn't otherwise. And I think that was incredibly prescient of Bowie, obviously. He saw it before anybody else did, I think. Um, he just apparently had that kind of a brain. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that the video game world is, is stepping into because it's going to get to a point, I'm sure, where enough of the developers of the game will be playing the game and the games have their own social networks set up where you're interacting as you play that the developers will be having a much easier time going oh everybody's loving portion x of the game oh that that's actually a really big thing in games right now is your community management and mm -hmm. they, they there are things where say you know, developers are actually live streaming their own development and you can talk with them as they're doing this or, you know, they, they'll interact and play a game with the, the, the stream while they're on break or, or things like that. Um, the community management is kind of boiled over in a number of sort of, 
uh, recent articles from No Man's Sky where the developers weren't necessarily uh, setting expectations correctly, so there was a lot of hype that didn't exactly pan out. Or uh, recently, Atlas, uh, a publisher known for um, bringing Japanese games over, uh, uh, kind of lesser-known titles, translating them and bringing them over to the West. Uh, apparently, they they missed a couple of lines that needed to be translated, and they were very open and said, oops, you know, uh, our bad. <laughs> it turns they they had this crazy line about our testers are actually too good at the game, and a lot of people are like, hmm, either that means they're not great testers, or they weren't given the tools that they needed, or maybe they didn't know to ask for the tools they needed. But whatever. That's uh. So my my whole point here is just that yes, that kind of interaction does happen, uh, in video games, and so I mean that. For, for media, that, that's kind of across the board. There's a lot less of a, um, uh, gulf between the audience and the artist. Well, and what that does for video games is it takes this idea of the investment of the player slash audience to a meta level, as opposed mm-hmm. to I'm invested in this thing that is fixed. Now I'm invested in this thing. And I have a voice in how it's going to develop in the future. And that is much more unique than a film or most books or plays. There are, there you know, are. That's, pl- that's actually really true because there are a lot of, say, you know, your World of Warcraft and they have to have a, 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 a rebalancing and everyone's very invested in it and they, you know, get upset or, you know, someone wants a uh, a feature to be tweaked or added or removed or something, and and people get very very invested in these things. Well, you see this with TV series as well nowadays. They respond much more quickly to what's going on on social media and what people are saying about the TV series, and you'll see plot developments that are designed not to purely advance the story, but are designed to please the public or to try to rescue the TV series. You'll see that a lot. But I was also going to say that there are plays and books that do offer you a certain amount of... Audience participation, maybe? Uh, yeah, uh, for lack of a better word, it's it's not exactly that. Um, um, there's a play called Eat the Runt, where every performer memorizes the entire play because at the beginning of the play the audience chooses which performer plays which part (laughs) so you could end up playing you could have two guys who are the romantic interests or you could have two girls who are the romantic you could i mean it it and the entire play is determined by that Hmm. moment at the beginning where the audience says oh well we think so and so should play this character and we think so and so should play that character and the play is also therefore completely different for the performers every night because (laughs) even if just one of the characters is switched around it's going to have a completely different feel yeah um there are also in terms of books there are a couple different books that i have read that have characters that are in the second person characters that are you Mm. um one of them is by ian banks and it's called complicity and pretty much every other chapter the character you commits some horribly graphic and 
just terrible crime, you know, putting spikes through people's eyes and things like that. And it's you. That's the character that does it. And it's not until the end of the book that you find out who you is. Um, <laughs> now that's interesting. And, 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 and it happens a lot. And by the end of the, by the three quarters of the way through the book, you're just like, Oh, I really don't want to read another one of these chapters. They're so <laughs> distressing. Um, there's another book, uh, back to the idea of teaching you how to read by Italo Calvino called If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. And that book opens similarly to as I described Tom Jones, where you, who are the character in the book, go to the bookstore and you've just bought this new book by Italo Calvino called If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. And you sit down to read it. And that's the first chapter. And when you go to the second chapter, it's the first chapter of If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. So you read that and you get to the end of it. And the next chapter, the third chapter says, you then turn the page and it is blank. And that chapter <laughs> is then a description of you seeking out an actual copy of If on a Winter's Night a Traveler that isn't incorrect. And you find out that, yes, there were problems with the publication, yada, yada, yada. And that's not actually even the real book. This is the real book of If on a Winter's Night a Traveler, which you then take home and start to read. And chapter four is the first chapter of If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. And chapter five is when you find out that the rest of that book is blank. And so the, en <laughs> the entire book is a series of interpolary chapters. One, it's only interpolary chapters, really. The entire book is the story of you looking for the book. And each, every other chapter is a different first chapter of a completely different book. It could be, it could be a mystery. It could be a horror. It could be, and you're just like, what is going on? And the and you, your the characters' investigations get deeper and deeper and deeper as the book goes on, and you're going to the publisher and different editors, and you're finding unpublished manuscripts that are the actual "If on a Winter's Night" a traveler. This is the real one, and that keeps happening over and over and over again. And I will admit, this is one of the few few books because I'm for me. One of the things that I love about books is they have great plots, and that's what I read them for oftentimes. Is I just, oh, what's going to happen next? This is one of the books that I got halfway through, and I stopped reading. Because I was like, oh, I'm not getting a plot. But it's a fascinating concept anyway. It is, and it was a fascinating book. Um, it just, you Until have your to be in the right frame out. of mind to be able to tackle an incomplete... It's, it's even different than short stories. Short stories have a beginning, middle, and end. You just got a beginning. You got all the, and they were great. All these great beginnings to novels that you never got to see the end of. Maybe but, Stephen King should write a book like that. But, he can start a story great. But the thing is, you are finishing each one of those stories. You're projecting. What it's doing is playing, as with a video game would, with your expectations. Because one of the things that happens with any time a, an audience member encounters a plot, because we've encountered plots before, is we start writing ahead. We start thinking about what's going to happen and what's going to be the next step and what's going to, what would be really cool if it was the next thing to happen. And that's where really well plotted storylines have a, do a great job of both living within our expectations and upsetting them. So a storyline like The Usual Suspects does a great job of that because you're like, oh, Kaiser Soze is this person. It's that person. It's that. 
oh my goodness, it's no, it was him all the time. You know? So, so okay, there's a um, <laughs> what. I was a little disappointed when I saw the usual suspects. I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging or something, but when, uh, when I was watching it, I didn't even know there was something to figure out and I figured it out immediately. So. Well, that happens. I have a friend who says, but, but at the, you know, at the same time, at the end, they were, you know, trying to, they, they were throwing enough misdirection out there that I, I started to doubt myself anyway. Um, well, that's just it. I mean, if you, even with a story like that, if you figure it out, so, Take the sixth sense. A friend of mine said, oh, I figured that out right away that the Bruce Willis character is no longer alive. And the thing about that is the movie is still really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. If you when you go back and rewatch it, the fascinating thing about that particular film is the first time you watch it, it's really suspenseful. It's pretty mm-hmm. scary. Once you realize what's going on. It's really not so scary because you realize all the things that that frightened you in the beginning are just forms of communication. Hmm. And nobody there there is actually no ill intent. <laughs> so it's kind of it's kind of cool. And even with even with that there's knowing that the Bruce Willis character is not alive, there's a ton of other misdirection that goes on in that movie when you haven't seen it the first time you know the first time when you haven't already learned that such as you know there's implications that maybe the the young boy has telekinesis or maybe he's he's mentally disturbed or something along those lines um some sort of uncontrolled psychic power which is kind of true so all of those elements are there and it's very rare i think i'm sure it happens but it seems like it's very rare for a video game to be able to upset turn your expectations on their head the way that a a good surprise ending in a book or the cinema can. Mm. Yeah. I'd say that there's um, one of the, like you talk about playing with expectations and that's actually um, kind of the storytelling equivalent of, of uh, a point. (laughs) This is a strange reference to make, but a point that Sun Tzu made in the art of war that that I like a lot is is uh, the orthodox and the unorthodox mutually produce each other and therefore they are inexhaustible and it's okay when you're playing up to the audience's expectations that's you being orthodox if you upset those expectations that's you being unorthodox and his point is if everyone expects this thing to break their expectations that is now the expectation that is now orthodox and not doing that is the unorthodox so well, and that extent. would be, and that would be why a lot of people didn't like one of the later M Night films, uh, The Village. Mm. They were thinking, okay, what's orthodox for him is to have some really great surprise, some mm-hmm. some twist. But there was no twist, not not in the way we were expecting. That film, the point of that film, isn't what we discover about The Village and where it's actually located. The the surprise or the interesting thing about that film is that the people in the village who have made the decisions that they've made to produce the village decide to continue mm-hmm. because they decide that the rest, they decide that no, we were right. The rest of the world is crap and we don't want to deal with it. Hmm. But, uh, 
Yeah, it's that 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 is a good good example of uh, uh, and and that's that's where some of the artistry comes into it too is you know whether or not you you enjoyed the village or think it's good is there's I I suppose the point I'm going to make has has two sort of layers to it is to be able to strike the unorthodox in a way that makes a quality narrative and or something that the audience can accept and some people don't care Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the things that video games can't take advantage of. There are some artistic endeavors where it's clear that the creator is throwing their product in their audience's face or saying, you know, I know you really love this character, but I'm killing him anyway or whatever it should be. You know, Game of Thrones is is like that. I mean, it's designed the the books are almost almost manipulative manipulatively written to get you to identify with a main character who is then killed (laughs) you know and it's literally you think oh this is the story of ed stark oh he's dead oh this is the story oh no he's dead oh this is the story of oh no he's dead and that happens constantly throughout the books so it's (laughs) it's one of those things where you know the George R. R. Martin just decided, okay, I'm not gonna play up the this is the story of this particular character who's gonna live no matter what, whatever. Um, no, the, uh, plot armor is uh, yeah. the phrase that's used a lot for that, and that's why, like, it's at the point where people have kind of concluded, okay, Jon Snow has plot armor, <laughs> and I, I don't know if that's gonna wind up being the case, but that's that's how the perception is developed, it's like. Oh, it kind of looks like Jon Snow has plot armor and he'll be able to do stuff. It kind of looks like uh, Danny has plot armor. It looks like uh, uh, Tyrion has plot armor. And know, I think so. I think uh, I think that the thing that Tyrion has is not necessarily plot armor. I think he just has. <laughs> yeah, I think the author just likes him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know that the author cares about the other characters as much, but I think there's a sense of there's something about his worldview that the author enjoys writing and he could, he could kill them all for all I know. Winter could really come and, you know, kill everybody. Um, but it's, it is interesting that that happens. Now that is something that I think video games really can't do or, or they haven't up to yet. And I, I, there might be ways to do that to sort of really upset your expectations. Like, I think it would be awesome if there was a video game, where every time you died, you came back as somebody else. Hmm. Like, like there's X number of characters that you can choose from. You, you know, there. But you there can only are, play that one character until it dies. There are, <laughs> there are actually a few games that kind of play with that idea. Um, Broforce kind of does that. <laughs> the old, uh, uh, you know, playing up. The, you can you can rescue characters that are you know. Uh, sort of parodies of 80s action stars and there's a game mode where you only get each bro once you rescue them you get another life uh, but when that one dies you they're gone forever and you have to use the other ones um, well, or the old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles game on the NES if you lose a turtle they're gone I mean you can rescue them at certain points but you know you only have those four lives and they're based on the four turtles or can I just even, can I just yeah. uh, take a little phrase out of context there? <laughs> if you lose that turtle, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
delightful. I just needed to, I just needed to point that out. Sorry. That's okay. that's interesting. But the thing about the thing about Broforce is it's a pretty simple game, right? You're, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it's two D. It's not. Yeah, it's it's not it's not exactly a uh, uh, rich with narrative. And the yes, the characters I believe have different characteristics, right? That they different things that they perform well. And yeah, they have like different jump heights and different attacks and different special attacks and. Stuff. But that would be awesome if okay, I'm gonna play in the world of Skyrim or whatever you know, whatever large scale world that you can play in. And you make all these decisions, you invest all this time and effort in a character, and you do to do to do, going along, going along, going along. And oh, this is getting difficult. This is getting tough. Oh, I didn't save. Oh, I'm dead. Oh, I'm really dead. Oh, I'm like dead forever. Like permanently. I can either restart the game or begin again here as this character who saw it, who <laughs> witnessed it, and. Or the spirit of whatever it is I was trying to do has passed on to them. Or this character who saw it said, Oh, that's a noble thing you're trying to do. I'm going to take up the same, the same path. But it's a totally different character. And you don't necessarily get a choice on who it is. <laughs> you're like, Oh, I know you were playing as a giant hulking warrior, but now you're a little skinny skulking thief. Or now you're the monk who has no armor, but has all these other random esoteric skills. Um, I think that would be fascinating because it would totally take a lot of the choices that um, game players use in order to create their strategies out of their hands. And you would have to be a really, a really competent sort of multi-tiered game player in order to approach that. That's one of those, that's kind of what, what uh, one of those things like, that hits what we were, what I was kind of getting at after you mentioned the village where you can, you can mess with player uh, with players or audiences expectations but at a certain point it's not going it, you, you have to uh make it acceptable to them and something like that can be seen as less interesting and more aggravating and frustrating i was gonna say that could totally cross that line <laughs> yes um but uh, uh, uh you know another thing uh, uh but i think I, it would I be won't... interesting here's the other thing about that particular idea if your storytelling is well done you include elements that are hints that the player would then not be so surprised. You know, this particular, this particular world is full of a religion that believes in reincarnation and things like that. That spiritual transference you were Mm -hmm. Exactly. Huh. So it'd be, it'd be like maybe you see, you know, some little spirit leave the body that died and transfer into someone else who just like, oh, time to go adventuring now. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, um it, and like I say, that stuff that could happen with that. That's the type of thing that would probably frustrate me as a player, but I would, I would also be sitting there just going, <laughs> kudos to the designer because that's so different. Um, but uh, another thing that I, I, I wanted to kind of hit at with, um, since you were talking with uh, the the second person perspective of a book, saying you do this, you do that, that's something that. You can do in a book that is almost the default in a video game. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something you can do on stage. It's like maybe you can do it in in like a rock opera or something. Yeah, but it's it's there's actually a little bit you can do stuff like that in film. 
Well, there's Hardcore uh, Henry. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to point out. Uh, but the, but in film, it's I'm not sure how well you can do something like that outside of a gimmick like Hardcore Henry or like the FPS segment of of Doom, the one with uh, the rock in it, or uh, trying to overtly give some uh, the audience the perspective of a, of an established character like. When RoboCop was waking up and you're looking at things through his eyes. Mm-hmm. So it's, it certainly isn't a, I mean, film is almost exclusively a third person medium. Even mm-hmm. if you have a narrator who's using I mm-hmm. and you're seeing everything from their point of view, even if, even if you're only seeing scenes that they are in because of that narrator's presence, which is also rare. I mean, a lot of films screw that storytelling element up. They'll have a narrator and you see scenes where the narrator is not present. <laughs> um, although although fact, there's also movies that'll do that and it's, it's so unimportant to anything that doesn't matter, like the big Lebowski. Well, and the Coen brothers have uh, a really good storytelling chops. So yeah. when they break rules, there's a lot of, there's usually good reason of and and, that, and that's another thing is it, you you mentioned breaking rules i mean to some extent rules are made to be broken and and rules can be broken to add emphasis in places or like if you're writing poetry you can break your meter to add emphasis or your rhyme scheme to add emphasis so you know the, absolutely it, but the problem is that so many storytellers decide that well if the rules are there to be broken i'm just going to break the rules yeah, yeah there, there's there's a, a there's a very fine touch that has to be uh used for that it's 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 uh this being able to break rules effectively is a sign of of great skill not something that you can just do well i'm gonna just uh drop this uh penny in the ear of everybody who's working on a story of some sort out there if you're going to break a rule make sure there's a reason that's the thing it's there's got to be a really compelling reason if you've been following the rules whatever the rules of your medium are if you're going to break the rules there needs to be a compelling reason and that compelling reason can't be oh it's cool and for it's that matter be, it's for be, that oh, matter learn what the rules of your medium are well, there's that, too. That's something that somebody pointed out to me ages ago. They said, um, you know, if you go back and look at early Picasso paintings, you realize, oh, he didn't paint that way, you know, later in his life with the cubist abstract look because he had to. He painted that way because he wanted to. And it was totally a choice. He could do the classic stuff, but he just didn't want to. That wasn't interesting to him. And if you can't do the classic stuff, well, then maybe breaking rules isn't maybe you're not ready for it yet. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things that it's a hard, it's a hard sort of pill to swallow because it means, Oh, you mean I've got to be really diligent about my craft. Oh, <laughs> but if you are, then when you choose to break a rule and you do it with intention, then you have something that's really interesting as opposed to, and I'm not even going to come up with an example of this off the top of my head, but there are so many movies that, where you can tell the person who either wrote the movie or directed it just said, oh, we're going to do this because it'll be cool. And you watch the movie and you go, that could have been cool, except there's no reason for it. Mm. There's nothing interesting about it. There's nothing compelling about it. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, and and you can you can kind of run into other 
situations in video games like that. Kind of a lot of the, what I mentioned a while ago, you know, set pieces in a first person shooter game. It's like, oh, you do it because it's cool. Or, uh, Call of Duty games at this point, uh, kind of have an expectation that there's going to be a stage that is kind of shocking. There is one, uh, you know, the original Call of Duty for Modern Warfare. I say the original number four. The original Modern Warfare Call of Duty had the stage where, you know, throughout the, the course of the game, you're playing as, uh, an American soldier and alternating between that and like a British Special Forces soldier. And at one point, your American soldier is on a chopper and a nuclear bomb goes off not very far from you. And, <laughs> and there's a bit, you crash, you kind of wake up and you're crawling around. You're obviously very badly hurt. You get a certain amount away and then you lay down and die. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that, that's, you know, to some extent, that's uh, going back to the whole, you know, playing with expectations. You know, most players weren't going to expect the, their, one of their main characters to die. But now we're at a point where, you know, a lot of, it, it, there were several of these games that it's, it's come to the point where, you know, you might expect some sort of shocking thing from the series. You're going to have some controversial moment. And I don't know. That's, that's one of those, you know, you break a rule for effect and now you're breaking the rule out of habit. Mm-hmm. It's right what you were saying with the conventional and the unconventional. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the things that that does is if you, and this is what M. Knight ran into, right? You break a rule like that or you create a surprise of a certain level with a certain shock value. Everybody expects you to outdo it the next time. And you can set yourself up for failure that way because everybody was so fascinated by the twist at, in uh, um, The Sixth Sense or even in Unbreakable for the people who mm-hmm. liked it. There's some who did not. Um, that one, that, that movie seems to have divided the world kind of in half. Um, that now, okay, what's the twist going to be? What's his twist going to be this time? Well, then you get to, a, I think The Village is his fourth film, and people are like, well, science kind of had a twist. And then by the time you get to the village, everyone's like, oh, man, you better come up with a good twist. And he's not trying to twist it. And and, and so in a situation like that with the video game, you end up in a, in a position of, well, can I raise the stakes? Can I? Is there something I can do that is even more shocking? Uh, another example would be the Matrix films. The first Matrix film, when Neo, quote unquote, wakes up, is such a crazy shock. You know, you're just like, oh, oh, oh whoa, that's not where I thought this was going. Mm-hmm. And that's really wonderfully done as a result. And I think it would be interesting if a video game, and I suppose, I suppose Assassin's Creed has the ability to do this with, with its um, interaction between the two separate worlds that the character is inhabiting. But where there's the shock value of, oh, we're going to pull you out of that world and put you back in the quote unquote real world for a moment. You can, you can jump <laughs> back and forth if you want to. And and that's, that's one of the funny things with Assassin's Creed four, when that one came out, because that was the pirate one. And almost universally, the reaction was, Oh, I don't want to be a, I, I don't want to be in this world. Put me back on the sail ship. That's where I want to be. I want to be a pirate. 
I don't want any of this other Assassin's Creed stuff. Just let me be a pirate. <laughs> and one of the things that that can teach you is if you're paying attention as a developer is what your audience really wants. Yeah, and it goes so it goes back to that one. I mean, this the, the Assassin's Creed they were trying to play into their whole thing, and they 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 in in an attempt to kind of expand what the uh, game was they struck something where the the audience was so fascinated with this new environment that they actually started to reject the underlying premise of the game <laughs> of the of the whole series it's like well that, that that kind of backfired a little bit but in a way in a way it's a great it's a testament to how well you created the piracy portion of the game right i mean you can well, it's probably it been, it's also been a bit too long since there's been a, a, a sort of any updated or refined version of Sid Meier's Pirates. I mean, the the most recent one was was just fine, but I mean, there's always stuff you can add to a game like that. So, mm-hmm. well, and is, I wanted to mention one other example that you may not really find in video games, and you usually don't find in movies either. I'm trying to think if there's a version of this but there's a the book the french lieutenant's woman and there is a film of this book um and they did a pretty good job of capturing what happens in the book and that is the french lieutenant's woman is a book that was written in the 1960s it's about the 1860s but the author put three endings in it the first ending happens about 150 to 200 pages before you're out of pages and it's the end of the typical Victorian novel. The second ending happens where there's only one chapter left in the book after this ending. And it's the end of a sort of typical 1960s modern novel. The third ending, which is the last one, obviously, is the ending of some sort of meta novel that includes the author as a character. Now, the author appears as a character earlier in the book. He appears as a, as a character. He looks at his main character. They're sitting on a train together, and he says, uh, I have two different endings for you, and I'm not sure which one to use. Huh. I know that the last one that I write, I'm going to write them both, but I know that the last one I write is going to be the one that everyone remembers. Hmm. I don't know which one that'll be. So he takes out a coin and flips it and use that uses that to determine what the last ending is going to be. Of course, the person flipping the coin is the character of the author in the book who mm-hmm. is being written. So the determination of the coin is determined by the author. It's really fascinatingly manipulative. <laughs> and it does a great job of, and it's such a, and that chapter, that, that scene in that chapter is only a couple of pages. And if you're sort of reading really quickly, you might even miss that it's the author who does this in as a character in the book. Right. Um, and his reappearance in the final chapter is also very brief. Sort of like, huh, I'm just watching my characters and seeing what they do now, and look at the, oh, okay. And you could, if you're not really paying attention, you might miss that as well. And that is something, that insertion of the author, the insistence of, by the way, I am part of what you're experiencing too, is something that I don't think other mediums can accomplish. The closest thing I can think of to that would be, or an attempt at that direction, would be something like the Blair Witch Project or any other found footage 
where the idea is that, hey, here we are. I'm the cameraman author of this film. But again, it's a character and everything about that is scripted. It's, they tr- they're doing their best to make it seem like it's not. Um, but your suspension of disbelief, you know, as a savvy theater goer, as a savvy movie viewer is going to be totally aware that this is all, you know, created as opposed to found. Um, and that's, that's, I think, an interesting thing that a novel can do where the author can decide to literally talk to you, to say to you, Hey, I'm the author. I have something to say. I'm <laughs> going to say it this way. I hope you enjoy the rest of the book later. <laughs> you know, authors can do that. I, directors can't really do that. The, I think maybe the closest well, thing to that is the, at the end of uh, a film inspired by historical events, you know, so-and-so went on to blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, you know, you're, you're talking about that and, and it's, and it's making me think of um, uh, the beginner's guide. The where where the the game creator is the narrator and walking you through this whole thing. Yes, but that is. I mean, we've we've talked to the, that like the execution of the idea can leave a lot to be desired. But that uh, is that a, that case, is a situation but... where that is the form of the entire narrative, which is a little bit different. Fair enough. And the narrator isn't the creator of the games that you're walking through. True. If the narrator was the creator of the game that you were walking through and was like, okay, now you're going to want to do this. Now you're going to want to do this. Oh, look out for that. And then, and then you get engulfed in flame. Oh, I didn't tell you about that. (laughs) I just wanted to see what you do here. Let's try again. I'm going to give you another life. If, if the narrator was doing stuff like that, Hey, let's give you another life. Oh, that's got to hurt. You know, things like that. I think that would be fascinating. And that would be a really interesting, uh, sort of relationship with the quote unquote author of the game where the author of the game is a character. Um, I think that would be truly fascinating. But you can't really achieve that. I mean, there are plays where the authors have themselves as a character. Uh, uh, there's a play by David Henry Wang, uh, where he is a character. And, but the thing is, his character in the play is a character. That character is not rewriting the play as you are seeing it. Mm-hmm. That character is living the play, just like the rest of the characters. So, you lose that that interruptive ability that the author has to say, Oh yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I'm not letting you forget that I am in control here. Well, we've, I, th- I think we've gone kind of deep into the meta here with well, this layers of author insertion into, into a work. But I think, but I think that's the thing that a video game, as I was just saying, if you, know, if you have a narrator in a video game, who's commenting on what you're doing and screwing with you at the same time, I think that would be fascinating. I think that would make for a great video game. And I think what it would do, I think an interactive version of the Stanley parable where you, the player, are having to figure out when the narrator is lying, when the narrator is telling the truth, when the narrator is helping you, when they aren't, what the narrator's motivations are. And things like that, I think that would be a fascinating game. You know, you know, uh, talking about that kind of made me uh, put another thing together. Because, you know, in a lot of narrative, there's the unreliable narrator, right? Mm-hmm. 
video games, because they're interactive and you're a participant in it, has the option of the unre- uh, unreliable interface, which is something that, um, it's kind of an old game, but the, the Eternal Darkness, uh, the game which has a sanity meter, and if it gets too low, weird stuff starts happening. It'd be like, it, it mimics that it crashed, or it, uh, you go into another room and all of the enemies are right next to you and just rip you apart before you can do anything. But, oh, no, 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 that didn't actually happen. Uh, or it, it presents as though the, uh, game is muting itself or that it changed the, ch- the TV changed the channel or, or things like that. <laughs> and that, that kind of sounded a little bit like, you know, stories will have narrators or authors. Games have, Games have to be looked at a little bit differently because you're not necessarily going to have like either a singular author or uh, a set narrative because, as we said earlier, you know, those things, it's going to be like the train's going and it's going to go in this direction. But because as a player, you can spend more time in one place or go on side quests or interact with things in different ways, um, that's not necessarily, depending on how it's done, not necessarily going to fit. So... Perhaps the game mechanics themselves can serve that purpose, and that's kind of what this, uh, you know, going back to the orthodox and unorthodox, that was certainly an unorthodox thing to do for, by Eternal Darkness, which is why it's so well-remembered these days, or so so well, uh, you know, regarded. I think, that's a, I think that's a fascinating thing to do with you, the game. I think there's a... I think, I think that is a realm of exploration that should be mined more deeply by by game developers yeah. because of the fact that it's it, the Stanley parable the thing that it has going for it is that you really kind of want to on some level stick it to that narrator <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know like cuz the narrator the narrator is is one they found somebody and directed him to to narrate it in this very holier than thou snarky way yeah so from <clears throat> pardon me from the beginning you're thinking oh I I don't like this guy and then he starts to make comments about you or at least mm-hmm. your character and the, you know Stanley was not not very good at following directions and you're like you screw you you weren't directing me <laughs> Stanley took the door on the right I don't want to take the door on the right um and so that creates this wonderful that wonderful tension <laughs> where Half of what you do, you do just to see what the narrator is going to say. <laughs> and yeah. I think that would be an awesome thing to explore further the way you were saying Eternal Darkness did, where the game itself starts to go crazy, I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. I think um, it would be really fun to play with that from the standpoint of sort of like the Matrix level where, or Assassin's Creed, where you are popping through levels of consciousness. Oh, no, you were in the game before. Now you're out in reality. Oh, wait, no, that was a game, too. Now you're actually in reality. Oh, no, no, that's a game. The earlier one was the real reality. And you've got to fi- you know, a almost, game where you've got to figure that out. Almost like Inception there. Exactly. What level are we at? Uh-huh. That would be a very fun game as well, where the the real trick to the game, each, le- each one of those levels... If I was writing a game like that, each one of those levels would have their own quest. And you would be moving around, making that quest happen, and maybe you have to go to another level to get to the next level on this quest. But the thing is, when the real hidden agenda of that game 
is not to achieve all those quests, although that's part of what you're doing, but to figure out where actual reality exists in the game. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm actually just the blob sitting in the bath of, in the vat of chemicals. Oh, no, that's not what I actually am. I'm actually the hyper-evolved creature, what, you know, who knows? You can make it whatever you want. And the, again, I think this is the type of thing that does not get taken advantage enough in gameplay and why I dislike the episodic nature of most cutscenes is I think it would be fascinating to have player decisions impact what the potential results of the game are. So, um, this is what I've been talking to you actually about when you are working on your Artemis, uh, uh, modules in, in that if the players make certain decisions, those should have ramifications later on, not just from the standpoint of, okay, now you're wearing a blue coat as opposed to a brown coat, but that you make these decisions and the entire structure of the game changes from that point onward. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe there aren't that many of them, but there are enough that the different game player different game players are going to be like wow i beat the game and it was really interesting another game player will be like yeah i did too did you what happened when you got to this point what point <laughs> i'm sorry what do you yeah. mean because and, um and they could have wound up somewhere else entirely yeah and that and and yet still win mm-hmm. like for one person oh actually reality was this one oh <laughs> for another person reality was something different because of different decisions that you made and I think to, to to make that sort of uh, progression of the narrative somewhat organic and based on the decisions of the players in their yes. playing, I think that would be yeah. a fascinating a fascinating melding of the agency. That's the word I was looking for earlier. Yeah, agency of, is a very important word when when kind of discussing player interaction with video exactly. Games. So that the agency of the player has far-reaching effects because that's what I feel like in, say, you know, the Metal Gear Solid type games, you have all this agency, except you really don't. Mm-hmm. Like, you make all these decisions, you have to figure stuff out, and yada, 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 and it's great. And then your agency is completely robbed from you by the cutscene. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's why, that's what I think is the disconnect between a good, really great storyteller um, and uh, somebody who's just got a movie in mind. Well, basically, like you said, it's basically a spy movie where you do the action sequences and the rest of it plays itself out. Well, wouldn't it be interesting if the, yeah, you play out the action sequences, but then you had some agency in the rest of the sequences and those altered depending on what you chose. Yeah. I mean, Um, hmm. and in fact, and in fact, I was thinking as I was describing this earlier with my version worth of several different worlds, wow, you're really going to rely on the fact that the ability of games has grown in order to maintain more information or contain more inf- information. But what you could do is you could just have different cutscenes in there depending on what, what decision you made, not in the process of the action scene. The action scene could be totally the same. So everything where you're, you know, reacting in time or whatever is exactly the same. But because you made a different decision, a different response in a cutscene, the next cutscene mm-hmm. is totally different. <laughs> I and some of that, it, it, there, there's a few ways that can work. Uh, because some, some of them can be based on, 
um, like decisions that you make in conversations in your cutscene type things, kind mm-hmm. of a uh, Mass Effect type thing, uh, type thing. I've never actually played the Mass Effect games, but that was one of the big, you know, calling cards of the Mass Effect games was, you know, you you make some of these decisions and they uh, uh, have ramifications later on. Uh, and in turn was why people got really upset at the ending of Mass Effect 3 because it, you all, like, no matter what decisions you made throughout the entire trilogy, you wound up in the same place. Um, but another one of the things that kind of strikes me as we're talking about this is there's, there's kind of two levels of agency that you can describe for video game interaction. One is the sort of grand storyline affecting stuff. But there's also, say, going back to Zelda and say you, you, uh, uh, are, I don't exactly have a, a great example off the top of my head, but let's say you're you're in a, in a Zelda game or a Zelda type game, and in your head, say Link and uh, um, man, I'm not remembering the names of the characters well enough. I want to say Minda, but that 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 one is uh, pretty well established in in the game's cutscenes. But you like you you interpret and behave in a certain way that in the game that these two characters have a certain relationship and you can kind of form these uh, inter-character relationships for yourself. And that doesn't really affect the grand storyline of a game, but it is still uh, uh, meaning and significance that a player can impart to a game themselves. Mm-hmm. Almost like you might say, oh, there are these two characters in a in a novel and you kind of imagine stuff that they're doing when they're off screen or, or off the page or whatever, and you can um, sort of interpret what their relationship might be like, but in a video game, you can actually act on it mm-hmm. and create it for yourself. So you can have that kind of sort of, you know, um, limited impact agency, you might say, or ancillary mm-hmm. agency. And and I think, and, and in a way, I think that's kind of cheating because what you're doing is you're just sort of, creating the illusion of impact. Whereas I think a game where you well, actually, when, when I say that, I, I, I want to be clear when I say that, I don't mean like the, the, uh, developers are inserting this stuff for the players to give them a false impression. No, of no, 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 no. An impact, but this is what, this is value that a player can add for themselves. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that it's, uh, from the standpoint of what we've been discussing, it's, mm-hmm. it's an, it's an illusory impact compared to, the impact where the agency of the player affects the fabric of the game. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that I would love to see video game developers playing with. Because then you are a really, uh, your participation is essential, not it's not plug and play. It's not, well, you're going to do X and X and X and X and X, and then you'll get to here. As opposed to, oh, well, if you do this, you go that way. You know, the ability to have that sort of agency and have that sort of effect on the world, I think, would be so much fun. And can you imagine the replay value of a game like that? Oh, yeah. Oh, and that's so cool. Yeah. And there, there are games that do have... Uh, some things like that, like, uh, uh, Chrono Trigger is a game that's kind of notorious for having, what was it, like 20 different endings, uh, depending on 
how you choose to complete the game. I think I've only done like three or four myself. And there's a bunch of other games that, you know, over the years that might brag about how many different endings they have. Uh, and it would be based on certain decisions you make during the, the gameplay. And then there's other games that do have sort of branching storylines. I The first thing that comes to my mind is, uh, ooh, what's the name of it? Uh, Colony Wars. Colony Wars 1 and 2. And those two games are actually pretty fascinating because the first one is, uh, first of all, narrated by James Earl Jones, which is awesome. It has a mission map where you're not necessarily expected to win every mission. Um, so it, it, the, the storyline branches and you've got different, you know, uh, missions as nodes in the, in the tree, uh, that you can see and go to and you can see kind of like, okay, there, I would go here if I won here, if I lost or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Colony Wars 2 has the same structure, but it's actually from the point of view of the other side of the conflict. Nice. It had a completely different narrator and all this other stuff. And so, so it's like, you know, in Colony Wars, one side wins and kind of shuts them off. And in the, the second one, the other side, you know, starts striking back and taking revenge for having lost and getting shut off before. Mm-hmm. Well, and that is another thing that video games can do, which is flip the perspective so effectively. Mm-hmm. And I think that would be a fun thing to see a game play with as well. It's like, okay, you're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting. Oh, guess what? You're not the good guy. And, you know, you know, I, I, and I think this is something that we can kind of, uh, uh, wrap up with here today is the, um, there are little things in games that depending on how they're implementing can be really just dumb. Uh, press X to mourn was, was one of them where like you, 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 <laughs> you're, you're at a soldier's funeral and just to have some, actual interactive element there's a thing that says you know pop-ups at press x to morning you have to hit that to advance um but little things like that can actually resonate well if as with anything it has to be done well uh in bioshock infinite to actually really get the game started you have to do something like that just like press x to advance but you actually there's a whole big area that you can wander around and look at and talk to people but to advance you have to you know hit a button and subject yourself to being baptized which some players were really uncomfortable with uh for various reasons obviously mm-hmm. but it's those little things where it's like okay i have to make the decision to do this or um uh like you have to 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 advance the game you have to hit this you have to make this choice and even if it even if it's the choice is you proceed or you stop the whole interface says you have to do the thing whether it's like uh executing someone or in the telltale uh, Walking Dead games, there's a sequence where you, a guy gets caught in a bear trap and you have to hack off his leg. And every time you have to hit a button for the next hack to get him out of the chain, it just, it gets really uncomfortable <laughs> the more you have to do it. It's like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's kind of you like know? that book Complicity I was talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, so just in video games, for those uncomfortable moments, leave it like it's not a train ride. It's not going to go whether you wanted to or not. So you can't just kind of like strap in and say, we're going to get through this. It's no, every time you advance, it's your choice. 
it will not go until you say, I am going to do this. And I think that's one uh, sort of fascinating element to video games that forces the player to be complicit in something they may not want to do, but the the game is forcing it upon them. And that can be that can be done in a in a poorly designed, heavy handed way, or it could be done in a way that is very emotionally evocative. Very true. <laughs> <laughs> to that I say so. yes <laughs> <laughs> okay um, so we've been going on for a while here I think uh, there's clearly plenty more that we can discuss about this but I, I think that's good for today unless uh, you have any other uh, particular notes that you'd like to hit oh I'm about talked out <laughs> alright <laughs> um so here's the part of the show where we I, I like to kind of uh, uh, share a little story um, about various uh, uh, things, you know, like a work anecdote or something. Maybe I should come up with a name for this segment. That, that would probably be a, be a good idea. idea. <laughs> so, uh, Bill, do you have any th- any uh, interesting little stories or anecdotes you'd like to share? Uh, I'll let you or- go first. <laughs> Uh, I didn't think enough about this. Oh, me neither. That's why I first. <laughs> oh my. Oh, let's see. Okay, here here's one. Um, yeah, here here's one. It's it's pretty quick, but uh, there was one bit I was working with some guys, and we got it in our head that you know over the course of this project on breaks during dinner breaks or whatever, we were gonna watch every James Bond movie. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure why. We just got in our head that we were going to do it. And we got through, like, all the Sean Connery movies. And we started getting into Roger Moore. And we weren't necessarily doing this in order, either. And what I remember was, we got to Moonraker. And and, and this wasn't even my idea. I was watching it with the guy. I, I think this is the guy, like, Chris, I think was his name, was the guy whose idea it was. We got to Moonraker, which starts with uh, uh, Roger Moore's James Bond in a fight with Jaws in a airplane or something like that. They were way up high, and you know they they fall out of the plane. Jaws is falling. Jaws winds up hitting he, the the fall doesn't kill him because he hits a circus tent, and it transitions from that into the opening credits with like the this like spinning outline of Jaws. Uh, it, with this like swirling colors of the uh, 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 circus tent, and it and it goes into the the opening sequence, and it just broke him entirely. He just hit stop. We were using a VCR at the time. He hit stop, eject. It's like, nope, I'm out. <laughs> I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> it's the opening of Moonraker just just broke him on the idea of watching other James Bond movies. <laughs> Some of those openings are inexplicable <laughs> um well like the like the 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 uh I, one of the ones we i think we did watch this one was uh um mm, uh the one with uh uh christopher walken why am i blanking on the name but it's the one with duran duran in the opening sequence and you have these weird like the, the you know the the silhouettes of women with pistols and whatnot and way fire was just this colored beam coming out it's like it's like little pew pew lasers and things it was weird yeah, those those like I said, some of those are totally inexplicable. A view to a kill, that was the one. Yeah, that I think that's Timothy Dalton. No, no, Timothy Dalton was um 
License to Kill. I think you're thinking of License to Kill. Oh, that you're right. You're right. You're right. Well, this I know. A- I, I I wound up knowing these things better than I would have otherwise because we watched a bunch of them. Well, this isn't really a story so much as, or even an anecdote, just as a much as a uh, an experience that I had that I think is interesting because it relates to this idea of narrative. Um, I was once in a play where we were in basically the initial production. That's the first time it is ever going to be fully produced. And the author was involved. And what would happen is we would be working on a scene and the author would say, yeah, I'm still working on this, whatever. And between the beginning of the play, of the rehearsal process, I should say, and by the time the play was produced, there were so many changes. Um, There was a scene that was right at the beginning of Act 1 that ended up at the end of Act 1. The entirety of Act 1 was entirely different. And what they do, what most people will do, is uh, when there's a change like that, if, you know, we've changed this scene, what they do is they give you a, a script that's a new color so that you can keep track of it and you know you're all literally on the same page. Okay, we're all on the blue script right now. We're all on the green script right now. Um, and the interesting thing is you, you eventually get to a point where you might have a rainbow run out color of colors. Script. What was that? You run out of colors. You run out of colors. That could happen too. But you might end up with a rainbow color script and they're like, oh, we're using pages four and five of this script and these pages of that script. And But it was fascinating that the <clears throat> watching the script develop and become so much better. And having mentioned that, it reminds me of another story that's not actually mine, but that I will also share. When uh, somebody I know was in a production on Broadway. It was a uh, revival of Stephen Sondheim's Pacific Overtures. And he was playing a character called the Madam. And it's a it's a woman's character who is played by a man and has this very complex patter song. Lots of words repeat and and it's very complex. And Stephen Sondheim was involved with this production and. Sondheim was constantly changing the words of the song. And my friend said it happened so often. And this man is one of the sweetest men I know. And he is an extremely professional actor. There is no way he would go on stage unprepared. But it had changed so many times that when he went on stage for one of the previews, which is where you actually have a full audience that have paid money to see the show, but you haven't officially opened the show yet, he goes on stage for one of the previews, and he goes up. He blanks. He cannot remember the words. Oh. Which never happens to this guy. I mean, he's just, he's on it. He's a professional. And he came backstage, and Stephen Sondheim was there. And he'd, re- I mean, he went up on lines that he had received that day. So Ouch, that, that had been changed, right. that had been changed multiple times. <clears throat> and so he goes backstage and after the production, after the performance, and he's speaking to Sondheim and he says, I'm so sorry that it's just so difficult. The, the, because of all the changes, I'm really, really sorry. It won't happen again. And Stephen Sondheim looked at him and said, do you know why I'm doing this? And my friend, when he was telling the story, <laughs> inserted at this point, I don't know, because you hate me? <laughs> but what Sondheim said really struck me, because he said, I'm rewriting it because I want to emphasize the things that you personally are bringing to the character. Mm. And 
at which point my friend he said he was just like so in shock that what i mean steven sondheim is a legend right and he's rewriting the role for you that is just amazing and it made me aware of i had already admired steven sondheim i'm not a big fan of musicals in general but i admire steven sondheim for what he does in terms of the way he writes his musicals and hearing that made me admire him even more I thought that was mm-hmm. an amazing, an amazing example of somebody using their craft in a masterful way. Yeah. So yeah. not my story, well, a friend's story, but yeah, but a pretty Still, cool story. Yes, I, I would say to some extent that uh, uh, there might be a, a, a sort of a personnel management issue if that uh, message or concept had not been relayed in any way until that point. I mean, but <laughs> well, dropped a thing, but. Uh, that yeah. has to do with, some of that has to do with the hierarchy of positions in the theater. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. I mean, the, I, I can like I'm not embedded in that, so I couldn't exactly tell you what's right or wrong for that. But that's just sort of what strikes me first mm-hmm. hearing that. It's like really the first the first time that concept was relayed was after kind of your first performance, but you know whatever. <laughs> it just just strikes me as weird. Anyhow. Yeah, that's that's a fascinating story. Um, uh, the the video game equivalent, like if, if anything ever happened like that to me, it'd be something like if uh, um, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto redesigned a level because of bugs I was finding. I'd be like, "Whoa, damn!" <laughs> that's never gonna happen, but you know, that would be uh, that'd be cool. Um, yeah, so. Interesting stuff to talk about, and uh, I, I'm sure this is a concept that we'll revisit again in the future in some form or another. Like, like we said, there's there's a whole lot to talk about for this kind of stuff. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for joining me today, Bill. You're welcome. And uh, if anyone out there would like to see me write about something in the Behind the Line article series or hear us talk about something here on Behind the Line Radio, you can always drop me a line at kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. And I'll see you next time, everybody. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, let's plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube, channel Enthusiacs, and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs.
Now, the moment of truth. Did this actually record?